So before we start, I want to take a moment. You've probably seen what's going on in the news recently. Our Asian elders have been viciously attacked, murdered, and killed. This is not okay. Everybody in the Asian community and all allies need to speak out about the violence that's been happening. So for this month on The Quest, we're going to be highlighting Asian American community leaders on this podcast. If you want to help, you can donate via the link in the show notes. We're going to get through this together. What's up, everyone? It's Justin Khan. Welcome to my podcast, The Quest, where I talk about the ups and downs of the trailblazers around me, their human stories, and all the things they've gone through before and after finding success. Today, my guest is Moses Lowe. He's the co-founder and CEO of Zendit, which is the payments platform for Southeast Asia. So Rob Chandra, unfortunately, passed away, but super important for setting my mind right. I remember going to him once and saying, hey, I've got these great ideas for a business. And I spoke to him for 30 minutes, 20 minutes in a 30-minute period. And he said to me, he stopped me at 20 minutes, and he said, this is what I remember. He's a very nice guy, so I'm sure he said it nicer. But the way he's, I remember it is he said, Moses, if your idea isn't worth a billion dollars, don't come talk to me again. <laughs> and I was, that was cool for two reasons. Because first, okay, yeah, I screwed up. I should come with only billion-dollar ideas and not waste of time because he's an important person. But two, he believed I could come up with billion-dollar ideas, and he took the meeting assuming I had billion-dollar ideas. And no one had believed in me like that before. I got to know Moses when he went through Y Combinator in 2015. When I met Moses, he was super scrappy, and he still is. They literally had cockroaches flying around their first office. And now, guess what? They've gone on to raise over $80 million and become a super successful integral part of the payments infrastructure in Southeast Asia. In this episode, you're gonna learn what it means to do whatever it takes to survive. You'll hear about how Moses engineered his own luck by coming to Silicon Valley from Australia and how the 10 weeks of YC changed his life forever. If you're starting off as a founder or applying to Y Combinator, this is a must listen for you. Here's my conversation with Moses. Cool. Well, Moses, thanks for joining me. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to just dive in. We've known each other for a while, but I want to give everybody context. So I was doing some research and I wanted to hear you tell me about how you played the game of life in your school class at the age of 13 and how that changed your life trajectory. Uh, interesting. So I, I went to a weird school where my teacher made games for us. Every Friday we'd play different games. Um, one of the games was a, it was a stock market game. And I remember that's the first time I learned about the stock market. We got paper money, we invested it. Um, another game was a feudal game where we were all assigned different roles. I was a winemaker with my best friend. And uh, by the end of that, I ended up richer than the queen. Um, <laughs> I think the game that's most interesting, though, is we he called it the game of life, where we did a test and we were assigned different jobs. Me and my best friend were the doctors in the village. And you had to go to the doctor every X period in the game. We realized pretty quickly that we were a monopoly. So we raised all the prices. Um, and became relatively wealthy compared to others in a short period of time. So then I bought my friend's electronics business. And in this village, there's only two of every kind of business. But because we were making money as doctors, we then dropped all the prices of electronics, and then we bankrupted our other friend. And then we bought his business out. So we had two monopolies. Um, and uh, 
And it was that parent-teacher interview that the teacher said, maybe he might like doing business. And so I remember that being told to me and I kind of haven't looked back and always knew, hey, I was going to start a business or um, what's now called entrepreneurship. So how did you get there? You're from Malaysia originally and then grew up in Australia. How did you get from there to, you know, when we met, when you were starting, you know, starting your first business? Yeah. So my, I come from a family of entrepreneurs or underdogs, I suppose. Uh, my mom's side is from Indonesia, uh, but he was a, he was a janitor most of his life and he taught himself the stock market and made money that way. My dad's side, his father, my grandfather, his first job was collecting sticks and selling it in the market. He became then a jewelry's apprentice and then built a business that sent uh, nine kids overseas to university. So in one generation changed the, the livelihoods. Uh, and so that was kind of this legacy that I was growing up with and always aware of what they had done. Uh, and then my dad's also an entrepreneur. So I just have this entrepreneurship blood, I guess, in, in the body. Um, growing up in Australia, though, there's not as many opportunities. I think one, the culture to the size of the market is not perfect for um, textile entrepreneurship. So I knew I needed to come to the U.S. So I went to out of school. I wanted to learn what how other people think. So I went to consulting and then came to the U.S. as soon as I could after that. And wow. there studied at Cal. But really the whole point was to uh, go meet people in Silicon Valley, learn the mindset, learn the frameworks, and super lucky to meet some really great people who then have mentored me since. But how did you know you wanted to be a tech entrepreneur? Uh, tech entrepreneurship. So it was always fin and tech for me. The finance part was I remember discovering like the capital reserve system. I don't know how I came across that, but it was encyclopedias and then Wikipedia. Once Wikipedia came about, um, I was just nerding out and, and discovering this like uh, capital reserve system. And I remember that was one point at which I said, oh, I really want to do finance um, and kind of pulled me that direction. And then at university, I also studied information systems. So it was this idea that I, I wanted to put the two together. When I looked at then tech, I thought, hey, finance is a world where it's really hard to uproot their legacy players for lots of reasons, but the system is definitely against you. But tech is this opportunity to change the world um, where people who are not from the right families, who don't have any business um, being in these uh, in these legacy worlds can come in and, and literally change our world. So that's what was exciting to me about tech, um, that opportunity to really level the playing field uh, in, the, in the markets we come from. Um, and you can see that leverage in lots of examples around the world. So I wanted to be part of changing our world, uh, the world I come from in Southeast Asia, and I knew tech was the way to do that. And so, and what kind of entrepreneur was your dad? Uh, my dad, I would say he's like a, he, he was a, he's a doctor, but he um, never wanted to be an entrepreneur. He loves the medicine part much more than the business part. He ended up being an entrepreneur because his boss committed fraud, and so he got to buy his own practice out at relatively cheap prices in a kind of a, in kind of a fire sale. Um, and I remember talking to him about business and, and me being my stupid self or often giving him advice on what he should do with the business, um, which he never took. So uh, that was my growing up with a business father. Awesome. Okay. So then you, you came to Berkeley, you knew you wanted to start something in tech. How did you, like, what was the process for figuring out how you would even go about doing that? Yeah. One of the professors I met was a guy called Rob Chandra. I met him and he was, he gave me a lot of advice on how to start. And he said, um, you know, first thing you have to find is founders. So I knew I had two years at school. So I spent the first year finding founders and me being the business 
mind that I um, made an Excel sheet of everyone that I met and who I thought might be a good founder. Um, and then I wanted to test that. So um, with uh, the founders that I have now, we ended up doing hackathons together uh, and we uh, we did a few like 24-hour hackathons because I figured that's the best way to actually figure out how people are. It's hard to hide in a short environment, high stress, um, and whether we could work together. And so the first ever hackathon we won was a Andreessen Horowitz Bitcoin hackathon between Berkeley and Stanford. Um, and that was when we decided, okay, this is the right team. We know we can work together. Uh, we won a few more hackathons after that, and then we we launched the business. Wait, did you get a Bitcoin award at that in that hackathon? We did. It was three Bitcoin. Oh, that's pretty good. Did you keep it? Uh, we sold. I mean, we kept it for a little <laughs> while. We sold it. We made good money. Not as good money as if we held it till now, but definitely good money for the time. That's amazing. That's pretty strategic, actually. Most people learn like just partner with their friend, or, you know, some random friend that they have, or whatever their you know whatever programmer is available. That's basically what I did with Emmett. Uh, but you kind of had a system and went through and found. Um, your two co-founders and then like once you had your co-founders you were ha doing these hackathons how did you come up with the idea like what did you want to build yeah i didn't need to have the idea come from me so i cared much more based on advice from rob around the, the finding the right people rather than the right idea uh, anyway the idea changes so i remember we got into a room and we said okay what are all the ideas we have read it out on a whiteboard put it on a two by two matrix of like what could we actually accomplish and how big is the price here um and Bitcoin remittances came up pretty high because we thought, hey, no one's an expert at Bitcoin um, unless you claim it. And if you claim it, you're suddenly an expert if you can talk about it for longer than five minutes. <laughs> um, and then remittances was this world that's really important to Southeast Asia. So uh, we thought that was an interesting place to start out of all the ideas we had. Um, and that's why we started chasing kind of Bitcoin, Bitcoin hackathons. And then... Um, part of the reasons I picked these founders was you know, I'd heard about commitment and how hard founding startups were. And so the way we tested that was I was still at school, but Bo, my co-founder, literally switched his job to go into fintech. He's an engineer, so you can get a job anywhere, anytime. But he switched his job into fintech so that he could build credibility around uh, running a fintech business. And that kind of commitment to, in a week, he got like six offers, I think, because um, he was in pretty big demand. And then I remember we talked about like which companies would help the most. And he went to Ripple, um, which helped us with credibility for getting into IC and fundraising. <laughs> so you guys were pretty planned about it. I love that. And then then you apply to YC, right? With the remittance idea. And I remember doing your interview actually. And you were I do you? I do. I remember because I remember making the case afterwards. I was like, these guys are pretty earnest, they're hungry. And I think that just building fintech in Southeast Asia. I was like pretty interested in Southeast Asia at the time because you know I have my my cousin there, my a bunch of my cousins in Indonesia, and kind of knew there was this growth market. Thought it was going to be a big e-commerce and digital commerce market, and so I remember thinking all of that and being like, "Well, we should we should fund them." I really like this. It was like I liked you guys, and then I liked the space. You know, I didn't know about the specific product, but I liked the space. I think at the time you were guys were building a product that was for maids, right? To do... Yeah, it's for domestic workers or, or yeah. Indonesian workers in, in other countries um, trying to send money home. And we wanted to use Bitcoin to to change that along with hundreds of people at the time. Yeah. And and we had also invested in Wave, the mm -hmm. company in Africa that was doing remittances and that had grown really well. So, you know, it's kind of maybe a little bit of pattern matching. Well, we, we were lucky because I think um, in, we had the fortunate or unfortunate experience of two YC interviews in the same day. Uh, 
Was uh, I the second one or the first one? You were the second one. You were the second one. Oh, so we, it was our we... last chance um, <laughs> to, to get in. Um, so the first one, we we must have done okay, but not good enough. And then um, I think we're super fortunate to have you to help us uh, yeah. get over the line. The way we used to do it, I don't know if they still do it this way, but the way we used to do it is if the first group was undecided, you know, we try to make decisions that day, right? The, and I mean, we're deciding on, at YC, we were deciding on, hundreds of companies over the course of like two weeks. It was exhausting. Um, so each, you know, there were a couple of different interview rooms and we kind of randomized them every time, mix it up just for fun. And so I don't even remember who I was with, but it's it's like the process is if you interview someone and you're like, well, they could be good, but we're, we need a second opinion. Usually it's like yes or no, right? If it's maybe, then it's like send them to re-interview with someone else and say, at the end of the day, you got to go talk to these other people. And then those people ultimately like kind of get the, the decision. That's how we did it. So you got like a reprieve. And then I guess we, you know, I, uh, in that case, I, I probably, I think I did really make the case for you guys. So like, that was probably it. <laughs> yeah. I'm super thankful for that we've, we've thought about that day many times because that changed the trajectory of our lives. I remember the first interview was Sam Altman. We got grilled. I don't think we did very well. Um, and then the second interview, we decided to totally change our tactics um, and totally change the way we showed up. And I remember Jeff Ralston said, you don't understand your customer. And then for the first time in my life, I like talked back to authority and said, no, you don't understand our customer. And uh, in my mind, got into a fight with Jeff Ralston, which probably in his mind was just a conversation. Um, for me, <laughs> I, was, I was freaking out because I'm never the Asian in me was was never willing to object against authority. That's funny. And in our first YC interview, like Emmett and I for Kiko, he spent the whole time arguing with them about whether JavaScript heavy client side apps would ever be a thing. You know, they were saying, no, it's always going to be computed on the server. Everything important will be computed on the server. And he was like, no, the future is like these rich client apps, which is, you know, came and basically now went as everything's mobile, you know, like where it's become the standard, you know. So there's pattern recognition around arguing. Exactly. Maybe arguing is what, what did it. <laughs> I love that. Um, so, okay. But you had nothing at the time, right? Like there was no product yet. We had no product. We had met Kevin Hale at Berkeley and he had said launch. So we'd launched something, but traction was like minuscule. It was, I think we'd done 30 or 40,000 in, in payments volume at the time. Tiny. Um, so yeah, we had, so, we had the right traction. It was moving the right direction, but it was, it was early. And so like, tell me about the process of going through that very, you know, that YC batch in, in 2015 and what it was like for you. Yeah. Um, it was a little bit of a different YC experience because I was mostly in Asia. I think I made only three dinners or so, um, but I had to be in market. The first six weeks was pure failure. Um, it's a three month course. So yeah, it's first six weeks failing. Uh, we didn't get the traction the same way. I remember going to group office hours and in my case, I was comparing also to the other Aussies. The other Aussies, one of them, they were growing, at, from memory, it was like 20% profits month on month. And the other Aussies were the first commercial drone delivery company. And they had won some like NASA deal or something during YC. So there was just these like amazing people and then us who were fledgling. I remember then six weeks in, I came back from Asia and had office hours with you, Justin. I don't know if you remember it this way, but this is the way <laughs> I remember it. 12 minutes uh, conversation. And I'd said, hey, we're not doing very well. Traction isn't there the way we want. Um, here's the best three ideas we have. And one of them was a Venmo for Indonesia. And I think, I told me, because I remember looking at the clock, uh, you just looked and said, eh, why don't you screw it? Like, why don't you just do Venmo for Indonesia, launch in a week, see what you can do. 
And so we took that really literally. And so we pivoted in a week we launched. Um, and then uh, I was back in Asia at this time. Six weeks later for Demo Day, we'd gotten 16,000 users. Um, so we'd found this kind of viral pickup of a, a Venmo-style product. And then that led to Demo Day. So it went from this, I suspect, black sheet that others might have given up on <laughs> into this like, oh, we've actually got the, the right kind of YC story and graph that YC expects within six weeks. So it was pretty terrifying kind of three months for us. I think the right experience to, to understand what it's like to fail. And then I remember asking you in that same discussion, what does product market fit feel like? Because we hadn't experienced it. And you said, it feels like drinking from a fire hose when there's so much coming in that you just can't handle uh, the demand. And so that was what it was felt like uh, once we had 16,000 users in six weeks. It was just like the growth was just enormous and we couldn't keep up. So know, there's, that was, that's my memories of, of YC. I love that. That's amazing. I'm glad I was able to to provide a, an idea that ultimately didn't work out. Well, actually, it was your idea. I'm glad I was like able to push you to an idea that grew virally. But but uh, so one of the uh, things I I have written down here is that one time I gave you the advice to just be a cockroach and survive no matter what. Do you remember that? That's that's a quote that I think most Senate people could quote back to you anytime they hear that story over and over again. <laughs> um, I'm in your company brainwashing your employees and I don't even yes. know it. Yes. And and it's because cockroaches are a very real thing for us. Um, I remember in our first office, we would talk about the cockroach thing a lot and we have lots of people who are scared of cockroaches and then even, even better is the flying cockroaches. So uh, there's a very real time when we're working out of a house, the kind of equivalent of a Silicon Valley garage, and we'd have cockroaches flying around. So it was really this like very real, it wasn't just like an abstract thought about some animal, which we don't see very often here in the US. It was like something real that we saw every day. Um, and they're really hard to kill. So we took that to heart and we, we have it still in our culture decks that people get onboarded with is like be a cockroach um, to whatever it takes to survive. And we love that analogy. So there's a few ways that we talk about it. One is around burn. We said early on, hey, we want to be really, really controlled around burn. We need to survive no matter what. And, you know, with the first Indonesian company into IC, will anyone ever invest in us after their day? Um, and making sure we extended the runway. So we talked a lot around like, you know, when we spend money, we need to return 10x to investors. So is this the right way to spend money? Do we really need to buy this expensive thing or do we buy the cheap one? So that was one way which we thought a lot about being a cockroach and making sure we had the runway. Another one was then in terms of how we um, how we build a product and how we build a business. It was we needed to build something. Uh, I think a lot of people like to build in the ivory tower, build something big and then go to market. And this is related to the YC idea, but you build something really, really small that you can find a niche for, that you can kind of corner in. And if you make enough noise, you can actually fly like a cockroach and like scare much bigger animals, humans. And so we took that analogy to be like, okay, let's find the part that we're really good at, that no one else can do, the corner that no one's looking at, because that's where cockroaches hang out, in the dark, in the quiet, when no one's looking. So let's find something that no one else cares about, which was disbursements. Let's go build for a market which doesn't exist. The big, the big boys in the room, the 800-pound gorillas aren't looking. But let's be the best in that and let's own that. And so we took that analogy and extended it to... Let's own this corner. And then as it grows, we'll grow with it and become an 800-pound gorilla. But we start with that phase. So those are the two ways, I think, that we talked about this weird analogy. And, I mean, you were super scrappy. Like, I mean, you still are. But, like, now the company's, what, 300-something people. And, you know, it's a big company. You, raised, you just announced this week uh, you raised, uh, 
$80 million total. Yeah. 65 yeah. million in this round, right? And so um, now it's, it's uh, you know, a big company, but like, I remember you texting me photos of where you got, you know, you guys were all living in one house, right? You're, you yes. and your, yeah. Yes. So we, for the longest time, for the first three years, we, we worked and lived down the house and I have to, I have to give props to my wife for this, but we <laughs> lived in the office, which was the house. Um, but I wanted to work 24 seven. So there's nothing like I, I the, the trade-off was, Hey, I'll get to spend more time with you, but I don't have to commute. So if you live upstairs and the office is downstairs, that's a really fast commute in between. Um, and so great sport on her, but for the first three years, I lived at the office quite literally. And then we also did, we, we call them Senate houses, but we would actually then bring Senate employees to live in the same house too, so that we could, it's this YC idea of like live, work, eat, play, build together. And so we extended that beyond the founder, which is how YC normally talks about to our first uh, 30 employees, where the first 30 employees all lived within like a hundred meter radius of the office. Um, in houses nearby. And we still have those Senate houses today. We probably have 30 or so employees that are living in, in kind of Senate subsidized homes because they've always have. Wow. So what are the, the cultural things that came out of that in, in the company today? Yeah, we were just solving for like wanting to work hard and work together. But there was a few really great cultural things that happened. One is a lot of us are not from Jakarta. A lot of the folks we hired were from other cities around Indonesia. And so we effectively became... The closest thing we had to friends and family, uh, friends because we saw each other all the time, but family because we didn't have any support network. So we had to rely on each other, which made for this really close knit culture where you spend 24 seven with the same group of people, um, almost cult like what might say on the other end. But uh, <laughs> this idea that you are always hanging out and it breeds it means that we don't have to solve for certain things others have to worry about. We don't have to worry about process for in passing information. We don't have to worry about hierarchy. We don't have to worry about politics because everyone knows everyone um, really, really well. And that actually grew to like uh, 60, 70, 80, where we're still operating out of this house idea. And we had most of the company either living in like houses together or, or very close to the office. Um and we also hired groups of friends so that we always had this really tight-knit culture. And that's, I think, really different from other companies anywhere else in the world, but definitely in Indonesia, where it was hard to find people who were really passionate about work, who, who didn't mind working seven days a week, who, when things hit the fan, are willing to be there 24-7. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch of great cultural implications from running this very weird system. That's amazing. And one of the things that comes up for me is like, that's kind of like the way that we worked with Justin TV, where we were living in the same place. We worked there. I mean, it was really only extended to founders, kind of like you were, you were saying, um, was like the YC way. Um, but it was like such an amazing time. I think now the culture has changed a little bit. You know, in the US, startup culture, there's a, a pushback against hustle culture and against this idea of like it's exploitative almost that to have people like working all the time, you know, and, and I wonder how you think about that or how your employees might think about it. I think that they people like what people don't realize is that people, some set of people want to be in that kind of environment. Right. And so do news ended employees like still want to be in that environment as you've scaled the team, like, or, or do people reminisce about the old days? Like how does it play out for your company? Yeah, a mix of both. I mean, I definitely can't say what's right for everyone, but I think for us it was the the mission we were on is we get a really rare opportunity in, in history to change our world, to define the rules to be the way we want it. For example, small companies before us 
you wouldn't even be able to talk to the payment methods because the banks wouldn't work with them. And we're able to get them all the payment methods they want. I know that sounds really simple, but you can't start a business if you can't get paid. And the big banks wouldn't talk to you, so you couldn't actually accept payments. And that's a problem that's solved in America many, many years ago, but is, is brand new for us. So we have this very clear mission that we're going to build roads and railroads into the wilderness. We're going out west where no one else has gone before and doing it in ways others won't. And we're going to build this underlying pipes and infrastructure. And so I think we're on that mission wholeheartedly. And so I don't think people minded. And anytime we talk about those times, it's always with smiles and, and, and great reminiscing. Uh, so yes, it was painful at the time, but those are some of the best bonding moments that we had. So I think in hindsight, we're all really happy about that. And I, I literally have a message in my Slack today, just someone saying, uh, as we're, people reminiscing about the, the PR news that we launched around the 65 million, people saying, you know, the best times are still Langsat, which is the name of the offices that we gave ourselves. So people still remember those days really, really fondly. Um, how it affects us still today, I think a lot of that culture still remains. So, for example, we have some massive customers coming online in the next two months, and we've kind of called ourselves a period of wartime where we change how we do things. There's less process, there's more escalation of things. People are we're, we're asking people to work seven days a week, and people are doing so like without hesitation, without any worries, they're, they're self-organizing into teams. So a lot of that culture has actually stayed. Um, and I think it was really hard. We, we questioned ourselves during COVID how we make that happen. But I think we talk about the word, about the word culture a lot. We talk about how we build uh, that culture. And so that has stayed. I saw the self-organization here. We know it's going to suck. We know that we're being ridden to the ground. We know it's unsustainable. We'll take a break at some point. Uh, but the self-organization into a world that we see now, really proud of the team and how we've stepped up. And, and you yourself survived some pretty gnarly experiences in your startup journey, right? I remember, well, I remember you texting me images of your house slash office flooding at one point. But yes, that, yeah. So tell me about these, like the tough experiences. We have had a real fire and a real flooding, which I think uh, pretty interesting stories. We moved into a new house and as we were setting it up, uh, floods in Jakarta have happened every year. And then this year, our suburb was the one to get flooded. But we're just a few few days into this new office and we were standing like waist deep in water and sludge. Our cars were all you know, flooded. So it, it, that's a real flooding. And then the real fire story is we internally, you know, whenever the situation, we call it a fire. Uh, but I remember once in our fire channel, someone said, there's a fire, but a literal fire. And we're like, what are you talking about? Like, what do we need to fix in our systems? And actually our, our next door neighbor, like the shared trash space was like on fire literally <laughs> and we had to go literally put that fire out same office so uh kind of both extremes of, of floods and fires and tell me about like covid and, and seeing kind of the business uh you know really take a hit during covid had, had had to be stressful like i'm curious what your internal mind state and process were so i tried to separate my internal mindset from what i needed to do in my role trying to lead uh, at the time to 200-ish people. Um, and so it was purely about rationality of, hey, things happen. We can do nothing about that, but we can't do anything about the cards we're dealt. But with the hand that we have, we can play it the best we can. When what we're really good at is, and it is rallying. So when bad things happen, we will rally. And so we sat down as an org and we said, here's a strategy. Things happen. That's fine. Let's diversify out. 
what does it mean to diversify? Sales, we need to go understand what customers want. Product, we need to go build what customers want. Um, and all hands on deck to accomplish those things. Uh, and so I think it was a really, I remember there was one town hall that was really important where we laid out this plan on what we'd do to look after ourselves, how we would make sure we, we would, we, we didn't have to make, we had a good war chest, so we didn't have to make any cuts and uh, could rally together and just focus on the right problem instead of worrying about the world outside, just worry about how we rebuild the business. Um, so I think that was the, within the org, how we thought about COVID. Things happen, here's a plan, let's execute. Uh, my own internal state, in hindsight, I can say this at the time, probably I wouldn't, but it, there's definitely a little bit of element of fear of like we've built this whole thing and then uh, this external factor comes in and brings it so much down. Um, but I think that this is where investors were really helpful. And I think the right mindset was, hey, this growth is locked in. These customers aren't going anywhere. These industries are going to come back. It just may not be in the next two years. And then find the opportunity in this which is a cockroach thing. Find the opportunity in what's here. We have the war chest to survive, so that's not what we need to worry about. So then the opportunity was, let's go after new verticals. Let's go after things that we couldn't have in the past because we have big customers coming to us with a request, but now we can actually go wider. Um, and then we got greedy and we said, if we can get our heads around the idea of like pain and anguish, there's actually massive opportunities during recession times. I remember Airbnb spoke about this NYC. I remember uh, Weebly spoke about this, the story behind the news uh, when they were talking about like these, these recessions being really important times to expand market share. And so that's what we said. Um, we've seen Amazon 99, Google 2000, um, 2008 more recently. Uh, these recession times are times where you'd be aggressive on market share. So we expanded to the Philippines, for example, during, during COVID. So we just went more aggressive. Amazing. Um one of the things that you wrote about in the past is kind of feeling the need to compete with your dad uh, as an entrepreneur and be more successful than him. I, uh, I'm curious if you feel like you've, you've made it and, and been able to release that or like, are you, is that something that like, it's like competition can be a powerful motivator in the beginning, but I found it oftentimes can be, you know, can turn into a monkey on your back. I wonder how you, I wanted to ask you how you feel about it. For some reason, I, I feel like I always need to be an underdog and I always need that, that competitive pressure. And it's a friendly one. Um, I have no issues. I have no issues mentally with my parents. But I, I remember my dad saying like, hey, talk to me when you've um, succeeded in the same way. So there's this sense of like, <laughs> hey, you're not you're not an equal footing. Um, and he's he's good at what he does. His number grows every year, too. So there's there's a big number to hit. Um, and uh, I don't think I'm there yet. I think what's harder is the grandfather story because uh, like I had all the tools in the world. I had an education. I don't have to worry about food on the table. I don't have to worry. Um, the opportunity landscape was just so different. My first job wasn't collecting sticks and selling sticks in a market. Um, I went to university. My first job was, you know, in, at BCG. So very different. So then understanding where he got to given his opportunity and then what I would need to get to given my opportunity uh, I think that's powerful um, to say, hey, I want to respect that legacy and, um, you know, provide the fruit of that investment. I know he gave up a ton of things, first grandfather and father, to to make sure I would have a university education. So um, I want to kind of pay that forward and then one and then also make sure that there's this next generation of entrepreneurs, um, even if it's not my direct kids. So what is that? What does paying that forward look like? 
Because I mean, you can't his his if he got to like from this order of magnitude, this order of magnitude. Does I mean, is your expectation for yourself that you're going to be like, boom, like this, you know, a ten billion dollar company or or something like that? Yeah, I think the expectation for myself is I know that there's a lot of luck involved. I think you also said that. Um, I think at one point you said startups is like six years of hard work and one year of luck. Um, and an overnight success is like many years of, of years in the making. So I have that in my head often. Um, so for me, it's been what I judge myself on is given, if I look in the past, given the information I had, would I make the same decisions? Did I try my best? And then there's some luck component to success, which I don't have control over, except I forget who told me this, probably you or someone at YC. Like the, the more, the harder you work, the more times that luck you get. So yeah. Did I work hard enough? That's kind of the test for myself. And then the success will come from that. Um, but how I'm thinking about paying it forward is I really like the idea of the PayPal mafia, which is you have all these people from the PayPal world, which then built the massive generation of founders and investors and the next billion dollar company. So I'd love to do the same for our markets, uh, where I would like to make sure that at Senate, not just give skills, you get skills everywhere. But I think so much of our minds is having the right framework in life and having the right mindset. Easy example, our first 12 employees, um, I love what they said to me um, about a year ago when I was talking to them. And they said, our minds have changed from them to us, meaning we used to look and say, those guys make billion dollar companies. Those guys can make successful startups. Now it's, if I want to, I know how to make a successful startup. And so I want to build that in our market because we don't have that in, in Southeast Asia, that next generation who can go build the next unicorns. And an easy proxy is this two Senate alums who have now uh, been in founding teams at YC companies. Um, so it's beginning. Uh, and so I'm excited about that, that we can spit out alums who are starting their own businesses and succeed in our world. Yeah, I remember in the early days of of Justin TV and Twitch, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I was writing with Paul Graham and I was telling him, he was like, wow, you, you know, you're really helpful in terms of promoting former Justin TV you know, team members who want to become YC founders and like bubbling them up. And, you know, we kind of recommended like Airbnb to, to YC. So he was just give talk. He was mentioning it. And I was like, yeah, you know, I really want Justin TV to be a great place to be from, you know, where people get a lot out of it. And when I, I reflect on my career, a lot of, I mean, really the most, the things I'm most proud of are the people who I've helped mentor in some way who have gone on to be successful, you know, more than my own successes come in a, in a weird way. And so I'd encourage you to keep doing it. It's very fulfilling. Yeah. It's extremely fulfilling to watch these people change mindsets and then go start their own thing and, and do well because of frameworks that we've, you know, we've demonstrated. So I can totally see that. And, uh, I'm a benefit of that mentoring too, Justin. Oh, thanks, man. So oh, I read your blog post that you wrote uh, about mentors and finding people who are, you know, two, five, 10 years ahead of you. Um, how do you think about finding those people? And like, how do you even know where you want to be in, in two, five or 10 years? Yeah, as I've, as I've hinted in past stories, I always have a plan. I didn't ever work out, but I always try to have a plan. So I have a view of what I think the future looks like. And right now it's really simple. I just keep building a business. So it's been now trying to find people who have built businesses at the scale I would like to be in in that two, five, 10 year period. And so, yeah, throughout my life, I um, I don't know who gave me this uh, framework, but someone did in end of high school. And so I've always kept this idea of the, the two years ahead 
people can really, they might end up being peers, but the two years can give you really actionable advice on what to do today, given the same situation. Five years, they remember what it was like and can give you a little bit high level and it's a good bridge. The 10 years then, uh, people have seen the pattern recognition across lots of experiences. And uh, and so, yeah, in, in everything I do, I've tried to maintain these different folks uh, that I have. Now, the simple way to get them, uh, one saying that I like regarding mentors, I mean, they're never called mentors. It's just you keep asking questions and they keep answering. And after a while, they, they um, are always willing to take time with you, in which case they become functionally mentors. And so that's what I've done is I've just, I keep annoying people and asking questions and the people keep replying I spend more time with. Uh, that's <laughs> just hustle my way to find mentors because uh, I'm not from anywhere and I'm not from anything. So it's just people who uh, I'm lucky enough to keep hearing answers from. Amazing. All right. So we usually bring in some of our, our fellows. Uh, Roddy, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey guys. Uh, it's great to meet you, Moses. My name is Roddy. Um, I'm a fellow for the Quest podcast. So my first question for you is you talked a little bit about how when COVID hit, there's a lot of uncertainty, but you guys saw it, you reframed the situation as an, as an opportunity to expand and just help your business prosper even more. How do you go about training your brain to not cower in times of uncertainty? Fascinating question, Ready? How do I go about training the brain? This may sound weird, but I remember being about high school and saying to myself emotions are really useless uh, because they cloud rational judgment and aren't helpful so i don't know if that's right or wrong thinking i know the world is more moving towards embrace your emotions but at least for me what worked is saying hey in everything i do whatever emotions i i allot myself time to feel them and then i put them away so when i'm sad or when i'm unhappy or something disappointing i get a day an hour whatever it is I can be as sad as I want, do what I need to do. But then I'm like, okay, that's done. We're moving on now. What's what's the rational problem ahead? What's the best answer I have? I can't control the future. I can't control what cards I'm dealt, but I can control how I play the hand. So let me then figure out how I play the hand. Um, now, if, I, if we take this more as a therapy session and I think back, there's a little bit of like Asian culture in there where emotions aren't you know, very valued. There's a little bit of... <laughs> Growing up in, in entrepreneurship families where you know bad things happen all the time um, and building some resilience. Uh, so I think there's something in the legacy that I'm probably not attributing to. Um, but at least that's the way I remember is about high school. I just said emotions aren't that helpful. So let me try to be rational. Well, the interesting thing about that is that you actually, like a lot of people who want to ignore, like I've, I've always wanted to run away from my difficult emotions. And so I wouldn't really process them. I would just try to hide from them, right? Which usually manifested as drinking or I would watch TV or some sort of like form of escapist entertainment. And uh, it sounds like your technique that you developed was really to feel your emotions and process them and then like be done with it, you know, which is actually pretty healthy. Awesome. That's some uh, great advice over there. So you've been to post-secondary a couple of times, first in Australia and then uh, University of California, Berkeley. Um, can you talk about, uh, first, do you have any regrets from attending post-secondary more than once or even just in general? Um, and can you talk about one or two things that you gained from the experience that you thought were to a certain degree invaluable? Yeah. Do I regret? No. So I think there's a different framework where you're coming from. If I was born into Silicon Valley to tech parents and had the opportunities of me sitting in Silicon Valley, 
that would be very different than if I was born to an immigrant family of a doctor in a town of 300,000 in Australia. So I think there's a very different kind of framework to think about the world. Um, so for my kids, when he's growing up in a tech world and has, you know, does he need to go to university? Probably not. But the way I, I thought about it was, hey, to um, for optionality and for some base of starting, I needed to, to go to university. Now, it, I was I was lucky it was all covered for me, so I didn't have to worry through um, uh, through scholarships and such. So what I learned from that experience was social skills. Um, I'm naturally an introvert. Uh, I don't like being in public that much. I'm not very good at it, I think. So I think the, the social skills of having to go interact with people every day in a big environment because I'd come from a small town was very different than before. Um, and out of that came some of the best friends that have then helped push me. Uh, we've all done different things, private equity, hedge funds, consulting, banking, whatever. But that that volume of thought, which I think we all appreciate, and I, I couldn't have had otherwise, um, has been really helpful. It also was the first time I heard about startups. So Atlassian is actually the same degree, same scholarship, a couple of years ahead of me. So I heard about Atlassian before it's the Atlassian that we know today. It was when it was three guys in a room doing something called SaaS, where instead of making you buy boxes of Windows software for 100 bucks, you'd pay a subscription fee every month, which is brand new at the time. So that was partly the inspiration. So I have first university thank for that. The second for me was I needed to get to Silicon Valley. And when I looked at jobs with, you know, working in consulting before, I couldn't get jobs that no one wants consultants in Silicon Valley <laughs> for good reason. We're pointless. Uh, but I, I thought at the time it wasn't pointless, and but I couldn't find roles that were interesting or that like interesting roles that wanted me, which is fair enough. I understand in hindsight why. And so Berkeley was then I needed to get to the Valley and I realized that if I was a student, I could open nearly any door because there's tons of alums and people are just generally helpful to students. And because of the way I look, I look like an undergrad. And because I can talk a little bit of tech, people assume I'm an engineer. So I could get into lots of conversations as a Cal student. Um, and so that's why I chose to come as a student. It was just this two years of freedom without having like a proper job to go do and execute on every day. Uh, freedom to just go meet people and learn. And 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 so in the second Berkeley, uh, there was mentors that I found that were super helpful. So Rob Chandra. Unfortunately, he passed away, but super important for setting my mind right. I remember going to him once and saying, hey, I've got these great ideas for business. And I spoke to him for 30 minutes, 20 minutes in a 30-minute period. And he said to me, he stopped me at 20 minutes, and he said, this is what I remember. He's a very nice guy, so I'm sure he said it nicer. But the way he's, I remember it is he said, Moses, if your idea isn't worth a billion dollars, don't come talk to me again. <laughs> and I was that was cool for two reasons. Because first okay, yeah, I screwed up. I should come with any billion-dollar ideas and not waste his time because he's an important person. But two, he believed I could come up with billion-dollar ideas and he took the meeting assuming I had billion-dollar ideas. And no one had believed in me like that before, um, despite it coming from you know, a reprimanding point of view. And so there were certain frames and mindsets that changed at Berkeley because I went from Australia, 20 million, small town, small country, to billion dollars is the minimum bar. Um, so huge frameworks change. So for me, that's why the two were really useful, not for what I studied, but for the life lessons I learned. Wow, that's awesome. And uh, speaking of last scene, I have one final question for you, Moses. So there are a bunch of people in our Discord that live in Australia right now. Do you have any advice for these budding entrepreneurs from Australia that are quote unquote stuck on the other side of the world? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, my advice for Australians. Um, one, I actually think Australians are really good. There, there's an outsized number of Australians, I think, who, who bat above our weight category. When I walked into Excel Partners the first time, I remember them saying, we love Australians. Atlassian, Zero, which is Kiwi, but we'll claim it, 99designs. <laughs> like, they, had, they had this pattern recognitions around Australians. And when I look back and I've, I've, um, I worked to the Australian embassy on writing an article on this, um, but I think the Australian culture is actually really good for entrepreneurship because we are lazy. So we hate doing things that we don't need to do, which I think is great entrepreneurship. For example, in Gallipoli, which is World War I, trench warfare, us versus the Turks, we are run by the queen at the time. Queen says, go run up this stupid hill and, and get shot at. Lots of Australians die. Australians are put in charge of the retreat. No one dies in the retreat. And we do things like we build a gun that fires itself after every period of time. So the Turks think we're still there utter laziness we don't have to lift a finger to fire a weapon this thing automatically fires with like water hanging off a string on a tin can but then the Turks think we're there and we run away so like that laziness and that Australian idea of like ingenuity out of like necessity I think is really key and then we also hate authority there's like massive cultural trait of hating authority so I think it's actually a really great startup stock now our problem in Australia is the market's not big enough um, if you want to build something ingrown. And uh, there's a tall poppy syndrome and there's cultural things, I think, which are a little bit anti-startup. So my advice is get to Silicon Valley because whenever I meet Australians here, we're batting way above our weight category. Uh, we're being more influential than we should be given the population. Just like we win the Olympic medal in terms of Olympic medals per capita, we, I think, are doing pretty well in terms of like startup success per capita. So get to Silicon Valley because it's really a place that we can shine. Uh, I think that's the simplest advice. Nice. I love that. Uh, that sounds awesome. Cool. Well, listen, thank you so much for your advice, Moses. I think I learned a lot there. And uh, thank you, Justin, for this opportunity as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Moses, that was it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. That was, that was fun. Thanks for having me, Justin. And that's my conversation with Moses. Some key takeaways from this episode. Number one, intention matters. Moses always had a plan. He knew he needed to come to Silicon Valley. He knew he wanted to take his time and meet technical co-founders by going out to hackathons. Startups are nine years of hard work and one year of luck. If you're intentional about all the choices you make along the way, you're going to get there a lot quicker than others will. Number two, you can't control the hand you've been dealt, but you can control how to play it. COVID could have destroyed Moses' business, but instead of sitting around and letting it happen, he and his team figured out a way to move forward. He dealt with his emotions in a healthy way, called on his team for support, and made tough calls to make sure the business survived. And that leads me to my last point, number three, be a cockroach and do whatever it takes to survive. Almost everything we do in life is a marathon. Finishing the race is much more important than getting ahead quickly. In the startup world, this means you should do whatever it takes to get to product market fit and keep your customers. Pivots can be hard for everyone, but it helped Moses turn Zendit into a multi-hundred million dollar company. If you like this episode, smash that five-star rating on iTunes and comment what you've learned. Shout out to Raddy, Quest Fellow on my Discord server who helped with this podcast. You can apply to be a fellow and check out all things Quest at listen.justin.quest. All right, next week we have Gary Tan, a really great friend of mine and fellow investor who's also inspired me to start my YouTube channel. I love you all and I'll see you next week. <laughs>